Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, it's Ben. So, Ben... How long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. How fitting, then, that we are the hosts of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely myself, Aaron Burns, and my buddy Ben White, who's covered the sport since Richard Petty had 198 wins. We'll discuss contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've seen and heard through the years. You're going to learn about where the sport has been, where it will go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. So, Ben, to kick things off, episode 10, Driver of the Week. I had, uh, I had thought about this a little bit, wasn't sure what direction you should we should go, um, Came up with somebody who, you know, I feel like not enough people talk about now. And, you know, he, he had a lot of success in his career. He didn't win a championship, but he came really darn close in 1984. The driver of the week this week to roll in is Harry Gant, handsome Harry of Taylorsville, North Carolina, the metropolis of Taylorsville. Not terribly far, Ben, from where you and I are, are from. Not terribly close, but not terribly far away. Harry Gant raced in the Cup Series for a very long time but really got a, a, a late start. He didn't become full-time and he, until he was about 39 or 40 years old, but had a lot of success throughout his career. Didn't win a Daytona 500, didn't win a championship, but became well-regarded as somebody who could win on any type of racetrack. Uh, ben, what are some memories that you've got of the man they call Handsome Harry? Well, uh, I'll tell you what, Aaron. The first thing that really comes to mind is about Harry is that he was very structured in his driving, very structured in his uh, career, very structured about everything. As a matter of fact, even in the beginning years of when he started driving in the Cup Series uh, back in the early 80s, he basically said, all right, I'm going to drive till I'm X number of age, or and then I'm going to quit. And that was, no matter where I'm at, I'm going to quit. So he ended up leaving the sport in 1994, uh, I believe at age 50, but I mean, he just decided early on, this is what I'm going to do. But what I remember most about uh, Harry was him racing against uh, the likes of Robert Presley and, and Sam Ard and, and some of the, uh, you know, Jack Ingram, some of the really good, uh, what was then sportsman division yeah. drivers, which later on became the Xfinity series and, uh, and Bush series. The Xfinity just, Bush wide series, as I like to call right. it. 
Right, exactly. And and so just like I say, very structured. You know, he had a con- construction company uh, and did for – and he might still, knowing, knowing Harry, he's probably still doing some type of construction. He had a steakhouse there in Taylorsville. Oh, yeah. Just – just uh, incredibly fun guy to be around. He didn't say a whole lot, but at the same time, if you did ask him a question in an interview, you didn't have to worry about transcribing half of War and Peace because he just was, it was to the point, you know, just, just a great interview, but very much in good shape. Uh, And like you said, he started off late uh, as far as a cup driver, but he, he had a fair share of wins and drove for, for Burt Reynolds, the actor and Mm -hmm. Hal Needham, the stuntman early eighties. And continued on. Of course, we were, we know him from driving the 33 Skull Car, I guess, was the one that made him the most famous. But then when he decided to leave it, he just walked away, and there was no fanfare to it. And still very happy and seems to be doing quite well in Taylorsville. Yeah, and it's funny that you bring up Harry Gantt's Steakhouse in Taylorsville because I went there when I was in high school. And from what I, it's not there anymore, but from what I remember, they had pretty good food. And I thought it was cool they had a go-kart track in the back. And I never forgot the fact that they had, you know, what was then the the Nextel Cup cars. They had like the go karts are painted like the cars, which I thought was always a nice, uh, you know, a nice homage to whatever was going on in the Cup Series at the time. But I guess because they didn't want to get in trouble for whatever reason, I don't think they would. But they didn't uh, use the exact sponsor. So like Dale Junior's car was number eight Budweiser, but it was misspelled. The STP forty three <laughs> was like the SPT forty three. Um, yeah, like every every name was just like a little bit off. Um, That's cool. Yeah, it was like that. Texamo number 28. <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny. It actually, yeah. you know, looking back, it's actually cooler than if they would have used the regular names. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. Harry Gant, I, you know, I used all those nicknames when we started out. And I didn't use the one he's known for the most, which is the Skull Bandit, uh, because he drove the Skull car. And, you know, for newer NASCAR fans, I mean, I think, you know, if I was getting into this sport now, Ben, and and trying to research it, I would just be like, you know, shocked at how often there was a sponsorship of tobacco or alcohol. Mm -hmm. uh, Because, you know, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, pretty much every sponsor that we had in the series was something related to a car part or oil or something, um, you know, or, you know, GM Good Ranch in that case. It, It was that. It was fast food like Hardee's. It was mm-hmm. alcohol like Budweiser, Bush, Coors, Miller, um, and that was about it. I mean, it was that and tobacco. That was that was where you you got your uh, your your largest sponsorships, and it was at a time when the series title sponsor was you know cigarettes. So mm-hmm. a huge change in culture from now. But when I think to Harry Gant, the first time I ever went to a racetrack, Ben, was '91 at North Wilkesboro. I've touched on this a couple times before, but. Harry was going, he was called Mr. September then, you know, no disrespect to uh, Reggie Jackson of the Yankees, but Harry Gant is Mr. September to me. 1991, he's like 50 years old. Now, I mean, it's like shocking if a guy attempts a cup race at age 50, he's considered to be a mummy, which was not the case at all, you know, when we started watching the sport. So Harry's 50 or so. He wins four races in a row in September of 1991. Just goes on this incredible hot streak. Nobody in the history of NASCAR's modern era, which I believe is since 72 is what NASCAR's record books call it, nobody's ever won five races in a row. So Harry Ant is going for five in a row. He goes to North Wilkesboro. It is the first time I've ever been to a racetrack. We went for qualifying, and Harry won the pole. And he dominated the race. And he's going to win five in a row. He's going to do something nobody has done before or since. And his brakes let him down late in the race. And he finished the race, but he had, you know, with no brakes, you got to lift a lot more and you can't carry as much momentum through the corners. And 
North Wilkesboro is a place that you still need to carry momentum through the turns, as you well know, Ben. And mm-hmm. somebody else who knew that very well was Dale Earnhardt, who passed Harry, much to the chagrin of Harry Gant Nation, and uh, denied Harry of a fifth win in a row, something that nobody has since done. The only guys I think have won four are Jeff Gordon, Jimmy Johnson, Mark Martin may have done it. Kyle Busch may have done it. Um, not many have, have even come that close. I mean, because imagine how much luck you've got just to win two in a row. That's hard. He won oh, yeah, four sure. in a row. And this was when yeah. Dale Earnhardt and uh, Ricky Rudd and Mark Martin were running rough shot over the Cup Series. And Harry comes in there and wins four in a row just out of nowhere. So impressive. I mean, you know, there's so many stories you could tell about Harry Gant. One more for me. Harry's last start in a Cup race was so Bill Elliott got hurt at Talladega in 96. Harry had been retired for a year and a half. I say retired. He really just ran the trucks in 95, which I, I always thought was kind of strange. Like, yeah, he's going to hang it up. Kind of a Mark Martin type deal where, you know, he's going to hang it up. That's going to be it. And then he just keeps racing. So <laughs> he did the trucks and it yeah. just didn't happen. So he, he did the trucks in 95. And so Bill uh, broke his hip, was it? In 96, in the crash at Talladega, had this really bad wreck. Um mm-hmm. And so Harry subbed for him in the Winston Select in the number 94 McDonald's Ford. And I was at that race, and I remember being so excited to see Harry Gant race again. I was the type of kid who, like, loved comebacks. So when I was five and Neil Bonnet came back from his horrible crash in 90, ran a couple races for Richard Childress in 93 in the 31 car, I was all about it. Um, Harry came back in 96. I thought that was the coolest thing. I always wanted the king to come back and – you know, I kind of knew better yep. that it would happen, well, but you know. Well, you know, uh, Aaron uh, talking to Andy Peachy recently, who was a crew chief for Dale Earnhardt and also had his own team, and that was the team owner that Harry drove for with all the school years. That's right. And a- Andy was telling me he said they got something approved with NASCAR that it was very, very common to most of us, but it was very important to Harry. And Harry had a great idea, and that idea was. And you know how the the floor pans on his race cars, on all race cars actually, would get really hot because you've got the headers uh, and the exhaust coming right up under the driver and right up under the the seat. Yeah. So what he did was, and a lot of times you get your feet burned in those situations. I remember Bobby Allison tell me uh, not too long ago how he had some races where his feet were burned so badly it, it just couldn't walk. You know that kind of thing. So. Harry came up with this great idea. He said, it's very simple. All you have to do is get some three quarter inch plywood and cut a piece about, uh, you know, two feet by 18 inches or something like that and and put it in the floor pan underneath the pedals. And then you're not going to have that problem. So all of his cars uh, had that, that three quarter inch quarter panel. I mean, that uh, wood paneling under his feet, you know, the, the plywood. And so NASCAR approved it and let him do it. But in that car that you're talking about that won the four races, Andy still has that car in his shop uh, near Asheville, North Carolina. And uh, in Arden, I believe is where it is. Okay. And and you look in the car and there's still that three-quarter inch plywood. And you think, well, gosh, that's pretty simple to come up with. But it's something that it wouldn't burn on the bottom too much, but it would keep your feet from getting really hot. And that was a problem for a lot of years until they come up with some, something and they went to NASA and was able to get something to go in the floor pan there to, to make sure that your feet wouldn't burn. But in the 60s, 70s, it's a real problem. If you can imagine just putting your feet right on top of a, a really hot piece of metal for four hours feet in the fire. Yeah. And you, and drivers would seriously, you know, come up with some pretty bad blisters on their feet. So Harry said, well, there's, you know, I know a way to fix that. And being in the wood construction industry, 
I got a piece of scrap wood I can let you have, so to speak. And, uh, they solved that problem. But yeah, that's that. If you look in that car, it's that, that three quarter inch plywood still in there. Missed an opportunity to call Harry Gant hot shoe, Harry or hot foot, Harry. <laughs> uh, you know, I, that's true. You, this, that's true. Thinking about it, Ben, I think Harry Gant's probably got more nicknames than any cup driver in NASCAR history. Cause so we touched on, uh, handsome Harry, yep. uh, cause the guy hadn't aged. I interviewed Harry in October of 2014 and I may as well have interviewed him in October of 1988. <laughs> he just, he looked the same age. Guys yeah. got oh, yeah. been blessed in that, in that case. Um, so you got handsome Harry. You got the skull bandit because he drove the skull car for so long. Another one was high line Harry, uh, because Harry Gant before the days of Kyle Larson riding the cushion before Tyler Reddick riding the cushion and nearly winning at Olmstead because of it. There was Dale Jr. who loved to work the high line, particularly on intermediate tracks, to get that momentum off the turn and and you know fly around and pass people on the outside. Kyle Larson's really good at it too. But before those guys, Harry Gant was the the champion. He was a master of that. They called him High Line Harry too because he'd go up there and just hug the top of the track, ride the rim for lap after lap after lap. And it's so much. It takes so much talent to be able to do that, Ben, to to not ever make mm-hmm. a mistake. Because I feel like if I tried that. Even if I was a pretty good race driver, I feel like, you know, yeah, the penalty is smaller because you're right up against the wall, but I'd have a hard time not cutting down a, a right, or, uh, right front or right rear tire. And Harry Gant never had that problem. The guy was just a master at, you know, as you said, uh, he had a plan. He would stick to it. And he was like that in the race car as well as out of the race car. But such a fantastic personality like Bobby Allison, Ben, somebody who helped influence the sport in ways that people don't recognize. You know, Bobby came up with the idea of putting power steering in cup cars and nobody before was like, you know what, maybe we shouldn't drive 500 laps at Bristol in the sun without power steering. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Bobby, Bobby changed the game with that. And I had no idea that Harry Gannon come up with that too. That's pretty cool. But yeah. You yeah. Know, and I, you know, one thing Harry told me one time, Aaron was, he told me, he said that one of the reasons he liked to drive high on the racetrack, he says, because he did, if he did blow a tire, it wouldn't hurt so bad if you hit the wall. Yeah, it makes <laughs> so, sense. But I mean, it, you know, it takes skill to be low, up there. Yeah. yeah. If you're running low and you pop a tire, you got a lot more room to, to crash harder. He said, if I'm running up against the wall anyway, and I pop a tire, you know, it's, it's not going to hurt nearly as much. When you were speeding so, on the interstate, did you run close on the side on the fast lane close to the guardrail for the same reason? Uh, I can't remember, but all I know is I was in, I was in shock when I looked down and realized how fast <laughs> I was going and I was already thinking, Oh my Lord, how in the world am I going to explain this if I get pulled over? Thankfully I didn't. Yeah. Like, like we said, dodged a bullet on that one. Harry yes, Gant sir. was a guy who, who dodged a lot of bullets. I think the only time he got injured in a cup car was in 87, I believe, and missed some races. People thought that he was, you know kind of give up on a guy late 40s got hurt damaged goods nope not harry gant comes out wins four in a row 91 was still competitive in 94 in his last season i think he won a pole too um and then yeah, he did yeah and he ran pretty well in the winston select in 96 but you know out of a car for a year and a half um with a you know in a machine that he wasn't accustomed to certainly it was a, an uphill battle for him so he didn't finish in the top 10 but i just had a fun memory of watching him race um i think he May have driven the 10 car in the Bush series a little bit. Um, I know the Skull number 10 car was driven by Sterling Marlin at some points, but this being episode 10, us always discussing the the car number that goes on with our episode, 
God help us when we get to episode 100. There's not going to be much to talk about <laughs> after the 50s. Um, yeah. But the 10 car, you know, a lot of people have had success with that number, uh, Ben. You know, when I when I throw out the phrase, the 10 car, whose name comes to mind for you? Well, the, the one that comes to mind immediately would be uh, Ricky Rudd, you know, who ran yeah. the set number 10 Tide car and his own cars. He ran number five for Hendrick Motorsports, but he switched to 10 when he had his own team uh-huh. and won six races in the number 10. But you know, one of the things that really surprised me actually is having lunch with some friends uh, today, and uh, we talked about the number 10, and I said, you know what, I don't remember the very first time number 10 won. And it really surprised me when I looked it up. You know, we've been around in NASCAR since February of 1948. I'm going to guess it. I'm going right, to throw out a it. guess. All right. Greg Sachs at Daytona in 85. You, you win the prize, my <laughs> friend. That's it. And and you know what? I mean, I was shocked. I thought 10 would have gone to victory lane earlier than that by somebody. But from what I can recall uh, recall and what I've looked in the record book, it looks like Greg Sachs did get the first victory using car number 10. And it came in the what was then the Firecracker 400 on July July 4th, 1985. There's an interesting story behind that particular victory. And that is that the car that he won in was a Diegard racing car, but it was number 10 and it was red and white. But Mm -hmm. prior to that, it was his car and it carried number 51 for the 1984 season. And then prior to that, it was a Kale Yarbrough Hardy's number 28 Harry Rainier car. And if you looked inside the car, you could still see the orange inside the car. But the funniest thing about that particular story, it was an R&D car for Diegard Racing. And, of course, Bobby Allison, as you mentioned earlier, was driving for Diegard that year yep. in 1985 with the Miller sponsorship. Well, it's all of the efforts were directed towards Greg Sachs winning that race. They put a Robert Yates engine in the car. They worked on the car with some of Bobby's crew. They, uh, you know, did all they could, of course, to win the race. Well, Bobby comes in late in the race for a pit stop. And lo and behold, there's no one there to change his tires. There's no one there to get, add gas. There's no one there to do anything to his car. They're all down at the number 10 pit trying to help Greg Sachs win this race. That was a deciding factor for Bobby to leave Diegard Racing at the end of 85 and go with Stavola Brothers Racing in 86. Yep. But he st- he's told me, I sat on pit road. I pulled to a stop. I looked around. He's like, there's nobody here to change tires. There's no crew for me. So he went. He either went back on the track or went back to the garage. I'm not sure which, but that was a telltale sign. Maybe things were not as good as they once were, and he needed to go look for another ride. And that's, so that's a true story. Yeah, that's uh, that's been corroborated to me in the longest interview I've ever done in my NASCAR career was with uh, Gary Nelson, who was you know the crew chief at Diegard at that time. I talked to Gary in the summer of 2014 for an hour and a half for a profile I did on him for Speed Sport Magazine, and it really, I asked one question. It was, Gary, uh, tell me how, you know, your, you know, some of your favorite memories of your career. And the man went through from the first race he ever saw to present day, 2014. And <laughs> one of the big stories that he told, of course, was this 85 race at Daytona. Me being a Greg Sachs fan of sorts, when I was a kid, um, I was naturally gravitating toward anybody who had anything to do with Days of Thunder and Greg Sachs. Uh, is a mixture of being best known for being one of the movie car drivers 
along with Tommy Ellis and Bobby Hamilton and some others for Days of Thunder, as well as this win at Daytona because it was the only cup win. And it was out of nowhere, unsponsored 10 car. Uh, I'm surprised. I did not know that was the first win by a 10 car, Ben. So I'm proud of myself for guessing correctly. But yeah, you did good. Thank you. Um, but that was a, a such a memorable win. And I get it from Bobby's end, you know. I'd probably be really upset, too. Uh, I totally understand him hanging it up with uh, with Dygard after that. If I pulled in the pits and there was nobody there, um, I'd be like, so I'm, am I a member of this team or what's the deal right now? And so Bobby left, you know, as you said, and uh, did not drive the 10 car, drove the 12, and had a lot of success with it, though, toward the end of his career. But, mm-hmm. you know, you brought up Ricky Rudd. I felt ashamed of myself because when I wrote down History of the 10 car, the first thing that came to mind for me was Derek Cope. Yeah, well, I mean, that's not a bad choice to me, but he put the number 10 in, in victory lane in 1990 at the Daytona 500 and one later on at Dover, that same Dover, Delaware, that same year with Buddy Parrott as his crew chief on both of those races. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, and that's, I'll be honest with you, Aaron, that's one of the numbers I, I first thought about, but I said, surely this number has got to have won somewhere in the 60s, maybe the 50s, yeah. some obscure short track, dirt track somewhere in Georgia. I didn't find it anywhere until the number 10 won at Daytona there with Greg Sachs. I just thought, wow, that's an interesting track fact if you will because i thought surely it's got to have won somewhere and of course uh you know eric uh, almirola has a victory in their number 10 and of course we said ricky rudd and i also found another one johnny benson had a, had a victory in the number 10 car too i believe it came at north carolina motor speedway in rockingham in the late 90s and so that was one i missed and, yeah oh uh, one in the valvoline pontiac for mb2 yeah, int- i just totally totally had forgotten about that one and uh so yeah i mean the number 10 it's it's a prominent number it's one that i uh, again i just thought surely somebody's done something with it and it took uh from 1948 to 85 for it to get to victory lane just an interesting thought I, I took to heart when you said a couple episodes ago about how guys thought that low-numbered cars were good luck, which is why it's more surprising to me that nobody won in a 10 car. I mean, there's not that many numbers lower than 10, and so many of them have had a lot of success. So it's quite surprising to me that you know nobody had given it a shot to, to use it more and to, right. to have some success with it. Um, and it really it didn't prompt anything, Greg Sachs winning in that car. They didn't even keep that number. So, I mean, you know, Whitcomb Racing... I don't think they used 10 until 89 or 90. Before that, they used the they were the number 68 pure later car right, before they went true. to number 10. So, you know, there, there wasn't a huge uh, amount of success in the 10 car for a long time. I mean, now Eric Almirola's won in it. Um, and as you mentioned, Johnny Benson had. Scott Riggs had a lot of good runs in the Valvoline 10 car in the mid-2000s and was super quick at Charlotte the, the, at that time, but did not end up winning a, a cup race in the points so yeah it, it is kind of crazy that you think there'd be a lot more you know success right. in that 10 and danica had you know for, for a lot of the flack that she gets i'll never forget ben danica was leading in that 10 car late at the fall talladega race in 2014 and i thought she was going to get her first win did end up happening i think brad keselowski won a race but she was out front with like 10 15 laps to go and i was like man if she wins this race that's going to be a huge boon to NASCAR, um, but it never ended up happening. 
No, that's true. And I think the, as far as Danica goes, of course, when that pole position and for the Daytona 500, that one year she was uh, carrying the 10. And, and I guess if you picked up the, the biggest victories for the number 10 throughout NASCAR history, of course, it'd be the 1990 Daytona 500, which that was a huge surprise. Even though talking to Derek recently, he's, he told me for an article I was working on that the car that day was extremely good. And he knew that if he could just you know, hang with Earnhardt, he had a shot. Now the difference was Earnhardt had pitted for four tires and, and Derek did not, he was going to roll the dice. Well, as it turned out, the four tires that Earnhardt had on his car didn't matter because he hit the bell housing from a car that had blown its engine uh, just a few laps prior to that. And the guys cleaning up the track missed it. And Freaking so, bell housing, man. Yeah. And that stayed on Huppy Wheeler's desk for forever. I think somehow <laughs> Huppy got it. And I'm he not surprised. His desk. But uh, that that was the biggest win, of course, the Daytona 500. Then you have to look at the, uh, I think it was the 1997 Brickyard 400 when Ricky Rudd won it in yep. his own car. Good point. And again, ironically, it's the same scenario. The, the leaders had gone into pit for tires. Ricky didn't pit for tires. He stayed on the racetrack and, and uh, was able to pull off the victory. And he told me recently, again, for something else I was working on, actually for Speed Sport, he said, that had to be the the one day that everything came together exactly like it would have should have but and looking on it on paper you think nah this is not going to work better tires i have no fresh tires i'm going to get past and for whatever reason he wasn't and as it turned out he ends up winning in the uh the number 10 in the brickyard so it's, it's an interesting number and i think you know who knows uh almarola might uh, hit on the right combination and and maybe put this that number in victory lane again this year who knows i think we're on to something with this ben lucky number 10 think about it greg Sachs, yeah. r d car number 10's never won comes out of nowhere cinderella story i'll stop quoting uh caddyshack now um <laughs> wins a race Derek cope second you know not a contender, but you know he's not going to win. Dale Earnhardt blows a tire. Derek Cope's in second. Derek Cope wins the Daytona 500. Vicky Rudd stays out old tires, not going to win, so finds a way to win the Brickyard 400. Flash forward now, more recently, 2018 Fall Talladega race. Eric Almirola is not going to win at Talladega. Kurt Busch runs out of gas in the last lap. Eric Almirola wins. There's maybe there's some luck in that 10 car that that people haven't either taken advantage of or noticed or certainly cultivated to this point, but. You know, we might be on to something with that. Somebody, there's some, there's some missed opportunities uh, in that ten car. Because if you look at some of the people who've won races, uh, most of the time they weren't contenders. They just came out of nowhere, or they lucked out and won. And mm. you know, that is the beauty of NASCAR. It's a lot of, a lot of times that happens that way. Um, and speaking of a place, Ben, where people come out of nowhere to win, whether and it, oftentimes it's, it's because of fuel mileage is the A Lifetime in NASCAR track of the week for episode 10. It is straight out of Brooklyn, but not Brooklyn, New York, Brooklyn, Michigan. It is Michigan International Speedway, the home of lots of Jimmy Johnson's angst from 2002 through 2014. Incredibly, it took him that long to win at Michigan, a place where Bill Elliott had a lot of success, Jeff Gordon, Dale Earnhardt Jr., a bunch of big names, Dale Earnhardt, uh, the senior Dale Earnhardt as well. Uh, ben, You've been to Michigan before. Um, what are some of your favorite memories of that racetrack? 
Oh, boy. Well, uh, yeah, Michigan's first of all, is a beautiful uh, two-mile facility. If you go into the Irish Hills of Michigan, it looks very, very much like North Carolina, in the, especially in the summertime. Incredibly nice folks up that way. To get to the racetracks, not a huge amount of, of businesses and such around it. A few small towns that have some great antique stores, by the way. I've been Sweet. kind of looked at some of those. But, yeah, there's just some some great racing that's happened there. And and that track is built in such a way, as I said, two miles. But it's, it's a wide racetrack. It's uh, one of those situations that... Uh, you know, if you're behind a car, eight or 10 car lengths or 12 car lengths or whatever, you've got the room, you've got the space to get around lap traffic and, and maybe make a challenge for the victory. You know, Cale Yarborough had some great wins there. Uh, I believe it opened in 1969 and, uh, Cale won there. Uh, David Pearson won there all the time with the Wood Brothers. And of course, Bill Elliott being in the backyard of Detroit, uh, where the top three or the big three automakers, you know, the Ford, uh, Dodge, Chevy, and those in the 80s and those days. Of course, that was uh, where Bill Elliott won several of his races. And it was sort of a bragging rights uh, yeah. situation among all the I manufacturers, think it still is. if you will. Yeah, it is. Because it's sort of in their backyard, not too far from Detroit. And, and you know, one of the ironic stories about Michigan was that well let me back up slightly 1969 when it opened it opened with sort of a grandiose sort of idea that we're going to have full grandstands every time we open the gates no matter what is going to be here uh and and it, those expectations really didn't come to play and there was some financial issues here and there one thing led to another and uh, by 1973 the track went into bankruptcy as it turns out roger penske we know the great Roger Penske the ended captain. up buying the track, and he bought it for, gosh, a song. Now, a song to me and you is a ten dollars. Yeah, a song it's a, to it's him a nice tip at a million. steakhouse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he buys the track, but he didn't buy it for NASCAR purposes. He bought it to uh, act as a test track for a brand new uh, contract that he had signed with American Motors, hmm. and so it was going to be a place to to test passenger cars for American Motors. That led to the AMC Matador that uh, Mark Donahue drove in 1972. Dave Marcus drove it. Bobby Allison drove it. Gary Bentonhausen drove it. But it all sort of developed because Roger Penske needed a test track, so he bought it. Like for I think it was like two million in 1973, which was a lot of money. Still is. Well, as it turns out now. Lord knows how much the thing, $100 million or something, is what it's worth. It's an ISC track now, I think. And yep. uh, so, I mean, it's just an interesting story behind the early years of, of Michigan and how it was supposed to be. You know, every promoter wants their track to be filled every time they, the gates open, right? But they it, better. It doesn't always happen that way. So, yeah, but lots of great racing there. If you ever get a chance to go to Michigan, great for the summer, uh, great racing, and uh, a lot of action. You know, there's a couple of trends at Michigan that I find pretty interesting. So first of all, Michigan International Speedway, for much of its history, might as well be Michigan International Streakway. And I'm not saying that because of streakers. Um, but th there are a lot of times where a guy wins one race at Michigan and th that turns into more consecutive wins. So Bobby Allison, 1971, swept both the races. Then David Pearson won three in a row. Then the King wins in 74. Then Pearson wins twice. 
Mm-hmm. If you're still following with me, then the king wins once, then Pearson wins twice again. So at one point, David Pearson won seven out of nine years, or seven out of nine races at Michigan. And David Pearson at Michigan in the 70s was as much of a lock as David Pearson in qualifying at Charlotte Motor Speedway in the 70s when you're just going for second. Uh, but that that's all, that's often been a trend. So Kel Yarbrough won. He swept at 83. Bill Elliott, four in a row, 85 and 86. And that meddling forward, forget about it. You weren't going to catch Bill. He won all four races and won there later in his career as well. But then 95, Bobby Labonte sweeps it. Mark Martin had a lot of success there. He won two in a row. Um, then more recently, I mean, this has been going on for such a long time, Ben. Um, Ryan Newman took two in a row in 03 and 04. Greg Biffle does the same in 04 and 05. Uh, Biffle again in 12 and 13 wins two in a row. More recently, Kyle Larson won three in a row in 16 and 17. Kevin Harvick has won the last three. And to punctuate your point about how important this is to the manufacturers, Ben, uh, Ford has won six straight cup races at Michigan. The last time a Chevy won at Michigan was in August of 17 when Kyle Larson won the race. That was back when Bubba Wallace had three career cup starts and Dale Jr. was still racing full-time. Casey Kane was still racing. William Byron was in the truck series. So it's been a while since Chevy's won. Toyota hasn't won, Ben, since 2015. They have only won mm. one race at Michigan since 2012. So those boys have some work to do to catch up to their counterparts with the blue oval and with the bow tie. But, you know, some of the most memorable races I, I think of, Ben, when I think of Michigan, there, there are a couple big ones that stand out to me. One is Ernie Irvin won in June of 97. Now, this was a big win for Ernie's career because Ben, as you know, and I think we've mentioned this before, you know, Ernie nearly passed away from a crash there in 94 in a practice mm-hmm. session. It took him, you know, more than a year to even be able to get back in a race car. He didn't run in a race. This was August 94. His next race was in October of 95 at, uh, at North Wilkesboro. So he was out for more than a year. Doctors gave him a 10% chance to live at one point. Guy comes back uh, better than ever. He wins in the 28 Texaco Haviland car in 1997. I remember thinking that was so cool that a place that had been, you know, so hard on a guy, he goes back and he gets his redemption and wins there. And another one that that, that singles out to me is uh, the August of 09 race when uh, Brian Vickers won it on fuel mileage. It was the first win ever for Toyota at Michigan. And it was one of those fun races, Ben, you know, late summer, there's like those little, you know, spits of rain. There's like a rain delay for like literally a caution period, which, you know, here in Charlotte, that just doesn't happen. If it rains here, you know, we're, we're sidelined for a while just because we're going to get a deluge in most cases on race day if it rains. Now, knock on wood, let's hope that that doesn't happen uh, in, in the near future or any time in the future for that matter. But as far as Michigan, Ben, this 09 race, I remember watching it flag to flag. I had just finished my internship uh, up with the uh, Yarmouth Dennis Red Sox at the Cape Cod Baseball League. I'd driven back home the day before that, back to North Carolina. So I was watching this race with my mom, and I just it was a cool race. Dale Earnhardt Jr. had struggled all of 09, had a terrible season. And I know where he ran really, really well, nearly won the race. Finished third. Uh, it came down to fuel mileage. Jimmy Johnson was leading. Jimmy runs out of gas with two or three laps to go. Brian Vickers wins up winning from Jeff Gordon and Dale Jr. A classic finish. You've got you to gotta watch your fuel mileage there. That fuel gauge is a, is a driver's best friend or worst enemy at Michigan. And, and I think people have said that for decades. 
Dale Jr. came up on the good side of it in June of 08. But yeah, a lot of fuel mileage races at, at, at Michigan. And it kind of, I think that fuels in the unpredictability of that racetrack, honestly, that they're on the throttle so much that, you know, it's real skill if you can win a race on fuel mileage there. Yeah, for sure. And it, again, it's a very sweeping racetrack. What I mean by that is it's it, you could pass, if you've got the horsepower, you can pass pretty much anywhere. And if you envision a D in your mind, a capital D, that's kind of what it looks like. But there's a lot of asphalt from the from the top of the turns all the way down to the bottom. And we see some three and four wide racing there from time to time and you know some of the some of the memories that come back to my mind is some of the great iroc races that were that were run there and, yes you know call. dale earnhardt's victory and oh my gosh it was just and and the reason i say that is because when you got when you've got cars that are that equal and on a track like that and and you got to manage your gas mileage you got to manage your tires you got to manage your horsepower. You got to manage the guys that are around you. But yeah, oh my gosh, there was some great IROC races there that uh, certainly uh, gave the fans a lot to to think about as they walked out because they they saw a lot for sure. Yeah, and I think none more so than the '99 when Dale Earnhardt and Dale Earnhardt Jr. are side by side, neck and neck, coming to the line. And I think Junior's still upset at Rusty Wallace because Junior's going to win this race. <laughs> He's coming to the line and. At the last minute, Rusty pulls out a line and pushes his dad past him, and Dale Sr. wins by a nose. And, you know, that was the only photo finish we ever got of the Earnhardts in a, in a major racing event, and Dale Sr. prevailed thanks to some help from his uh, his buddy, Rusty Wallace. Um, but, yeah, a lot of cool races at the his- throughout the history. Uh, just recently, uh, if you want to win Michigan, um, you, you need to do something to Kevin Harvick's car because he's won four of the last five there. It's become his new Phoenix. It's like his personal playground. Um, and I would pick Harvick again this year. He swept last year there, and he won in August of 19. So guy has got it figured out. Uh, he has won there quite a bit. Won there in 2010 was the first time, and he has figured it out since then. Um but it is a cool racetrack, and it is a place that truly rewards horsepower and driving skill. Um, another thing, Ben, which record, which uh, records rewards driver skill and horsepower, is the Indianapolis 500 and its Memorial Day compatriot, the Coca-Cola 600. And Ben, there are a few interesting stories of drivers who have atten- who have. This still amazes me. I think, it, honestly, I mean, I, I'm impressed if you're a journalist and you try to do both, let alone a race car driver, but <laughs> running the, the Indy 500 and the Coca-Cola 600 on the same day, that's 1,100 miles if you're lucky, and I use the term lucky very loosely because I can scarcely imagine the physical exhaustion and the toll this puts on a guy when he's driving a car for that long. Several people have done it, though, Ben. Uh, the first one was back in 1994, right? Yeah, 1994, John Andretti, the late John Andretti did it. And, you know, you're right. It's a mental uh, game that you have to play in each of these races as far as doing 600 miles at Charlotte, 500 miles in the Indy 500. But just the the pageantry of both of those races and and the hype of both of those races and what you have to do logistically to pull something like this off is – you have to uh, be able to have all your people in the right place. You got to have helicopters 
ready to go, ready to fire engines. You got to run from one thing to the next to get there in time. And you know what? I mean, in all honesty, had John Andretti been able to win the 1994 Coca-Cola 600, he might not have been able to do the double because the time window was so narrow to be able to, or excuse me, if he had won the 500 coming to the 600, um, the, the timing in the window was so narrow that he might not have been able to, you know, to pull both off because of all the obligations after the race. You but, just chug uh, that milk and throw that wreath on real yeah, quick. Say thanks sure. to all my guys, and bang, you're getting on the helicopter. Right, <laughs> and and see, I was I was thinking the opposite. It started with the Indianapolis 500, it ended under the lights in the 600, and to do that, you just had to basically say car ran great i love my crew i love my car it was super goodbye and yep. get on the air, airplane and get on the helicopter and and i remember them dropping uh john andretti and various other drivers into the little grassy area between pit road and the and the dog leg at charlotte and just and they'd run to their car basically putting on their driver's suit as they're getting out of the helicopter and go right to the car and the national anthem you know comes on and and they're racing i mean that's a lot to do it for the 500 and then try to do both is it's quite a piece of cake to swallow for sure i have the utmost respect for anybody willing to even try such a such a thing uh i remember very vividly kurt bush doing it in 2014 because not only is he the most recent guy to do it but also you know we all thought kurt had a great shot at winning one or both i mean he's Mm. he was very quick at indianapolis for a guy who had never raced an indy car and kurt bush is you know he's a jack of all trades. He's raced a pro stock in the NHRA. He's a Cup Series champion. Uh, so he tries Indy cars in 2014. He's drive, driving for Michael Andretti's Andretti Autosport team with you know a lot of proven guys who have won and had a lot of success in Indianapolis. So Kurt's in a good car, and he finishes top 10, won Rookie of the Year, I think. Had a heck of a run. And then I vividly remember, Ben, you probably know more than a few feet from me because I was recording this from Pitt Road watching Kurt's chopper land um on the ball field which is what we call it the speedway known more commonly as the infield grass and he like you said runs out of it uh, and you know gets his suit on and he's ready to go another 600 miles and unfortunately had an engine failure about halfway through that race that robbed us of seeing 1100 miles but kurtz tried it andretti's tried it tony stewart uh in 99 is a rookie in the cup series and tony tried it and he's the only one i think to have gone all 1100 and then Robbie Gordon, I remember him in 97. So I was a Robbie Gordon fan when I was a kid. I, I, I was just, you know, as much as I like guys who are comeback guys, I like guys who try different things. Robbie Gordon f- fits, as you know, he fits that description. Um, IndyCar race winner for Derek Walker Racing in the Valvoline car in 95. Robbie moves from open wheel to, to uh, the Winston Cup in 97. Won a pole at Atlanta. Didn't have a ton of success until 2001, late year, when he uh, got hooked up with Richard Childress and won a couple of races, three races, actually, from 01 to 03, but back to 97. Robbie Gordon drives the Coors Light car in Winston Cup. He's going to drive the Coors Light Indy car in Indianapolis, and Robbie had a pretty darn good car for this race. This was the Indy 500 bin that was delayed from Sunday to Monday because of rain, and they ran like 30 laps on Monday, then it rained again, then they ran it Tuesday, so he... He did the double. It was a little bit of an interesting one, but in Robbie's case, his car caught on fire, mm. and he was he was. It, but it was that invisible ethanol fire. So I remember watching this Indianapolis 500. It's the second earliest one I remember watching. I think 96 is my earliest memory of watching it. But 
Robbie climbs out of that car. Like they're under caution, I think. And Robbie stops his car in the grass and gets out and just starts rolling around in the grass. And I was thinking, like, what is he doing? Is he it looks like he's on fire? And he was. So you could see his fire suit getting burned. You could see it burning, but you couldn't see any fire. It was the strangest thing. And fortunately they put the fire out. And Robbie wanted to get back in the car and race. And I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know if he did or not, but he ended up doing obviously all eleven hundred miles. But you know, a few people have, have had that cavalier attitude. Who do you think is the next guy, Ben, who would give that a shot? Oh, boy. Uh, I'd have to think about that just a minute. Uh, well, it'd have to be somebody aggressive, somebody that has got a bucket list, somebody that says, I know I can do it. You know, I'd probably go, I mean, in all honesty, I'd probably go with Kyle Busch. Okay. You know, maybe because... I mean, he's got one of those I can win anything attitudes, which is great because that's what you need to drive a race car. Yep. And I think if the right opportunity were to come along, he would take that uh, M&M sponsorship to an IndyCar and and move it uh, into the 500 and move it right on over to the 600. And But you know, something else comes to mind too, Aaron, about these two types of race cars. The, the IndyCar, as you know, is an extremely light, uh, different uh, wheelbase, sure. uh, turning radius, the one thing I like about an IndyCar now is, uh, is what what they ran in 2020 was this you know canopy type body style, which I think helps to keep the driver a little safer. Absolutely. Uh, than than having an exposed uh, shoulders and head area, in the event of a crash, and and uh, but that that's something that these drivers would have to adapt to is is the what I what comes to my mind is the turning radius on these cars because. You barely, barely twitch the, you know, the steering wheel in an Indy car, and you could be sideways or spinning out. It's sort of same thing in today's uh, Cup Series cars too. You don't have to crank a, a steering wheel around like you used to have to do in the say the 80s or 90s. Uh, you still, of course, have to steer the car. Don't get me wrong. But I'm saying the radius of the car steering wheel is not, you know, not a lot. But you still there's still a difference between an Indy car steering system and a cup steering system. So that in itself is something that a driver would have to get used to. The weight of the cars are so much different. And again, we go back to the, uh, the thinking of how the pageantry of the, the races themselves and how big races they are and, and being pulled in all different directions. And to me, I just think it would be tough. If anything was what Richard Petty used to say, the happiest that he would be in his driving career was when he was actually in the race car and the, the the window net was up and the radio was connected because he wasn't being pulled in so many directions by say obligations, PR people, et cetera, even though he loves the fans, don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying he had a lot going on prior to races. And so that was the happiest. So I guess that's when you can settle down behind the wheel and you can get into the the rhythm and the mode of what you're trying to do. So yeah, it's, it'd be tough, but I think to answer your question in a long-winded way here, I think Kyle Busch would probably be my my choice to say, okay, I want to try this one time to see how I can do to before my career ends someday. I think Kyle would be my man. That was a non-Harry Gann answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's yeah, it, it, you know, and I honestly, I think the thing that's holding Kyle back more than anything is the fact that there's not Toyota is an engine supplier. They are not right. an engine supplier in any car. I think if they were. Uh, they were before 2005. Um, if they still were, I think Kyle would have already done it. In all honesty, I think that's the thing that's holding him back. It's probably holding several guys back. Um, 
I don't know what's yeah. holding Kyle Larson back. Um, you know, he's he's a guy I would pick to do it. I think he could do very well doing both. He has the physical build, not to mention the skill, the talent, the hunger to succeed at both. And open wheel background, I think the guy would be phenomenal in IndyCar. I think he's going to do it sometime. I, I just get yeah, that, I get I, that vibe. I could see that. I could. Yeah, that's a great choice because uh, he has had tremendous amount of experience and success in open wheel machines. And, you know, that's something that we can visit down the road sometime in one of our podcasts, but I've learned from doing interviews with with various people, Jimmy Johnson, for one, Jeff Gordon, for one, Ricky Rudd, which surprised me. Uh, they all intended to drive Indy cars. They didn't intend to go to, to NASCAR and stock cars. And they really had their mind and heart set on trying to be successful and win the Indy 500. And, and you only think, well, wow, I didn't know that. But Jeff very much wanted to. And, and Jimmy Johnson did because he had open wheel background, you know, in the off-road type stuff in California. And then Ricky Rudd was an incredible go-kart racer in his teens and won some, a lot of races. That's why he was so good on road courses where he got his first and last victory in his career. So, yeah, I mean, it's something we can look at later. But but the IndyCar uh, mentality or the aura of driving an IndyCar, I've noticed a lot of other guys that would do it. If, if the circumstances were right. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, but it comes down to timing. It comes down to hey, weather. how well they do you gotta pull in off one the, race and the other. You yeah. gotta have good weather too for the logistics. There's so many things that go into making that happen. Oh yeah. Yes, and, there are a and, lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And so dear listener, you have probably heard us tell stories about people like Bobby Allison and Kale Yarborough, um, and there, there are a couple reasons for this. One, we, we like Bobby and we like Kale, but also those guys, you know, are some of the few who, you know, in this case, they are, you know, they're always relevant conversation because they, they won so much. They did so many different cool things. They are super awesome guys to talk to, but also they both also are in the Indianapolis 500. Um, Kale, when, the only time I ever talked to Kale, Ben, was in 2012. First NASCAR event I ever covered was the Hall of Fame induction ceremony. And I was doing a story on Kale's IndyCar career. And so mm-hmm. he was telling me about when he drove for this guy named Rolla Volstead, which I could barely understand what he was saying. And so I was <laughs> trying to figure out, because the yeah. um, I don't think the transcript said Rolla Volstead. So I was trying to figure out, like, all right, so who did he drive for? So I just Googled Kale Yarborough IndyCar team owner. And that's how I got Rolla Volstead. That's R-O-L-L-A-V-O-L-L-S-T-E-D-T. Kale drove Indy. Really could have done well if he stuck with it. Wanted to go back to NASCAR. Bobby tried it. Bobby did well. Bobby had the speed to hang to hang with those boys in Indianapolis. Um, and you know, of course, this was at a time when the 600 and the 500 weren't the same day, or at least in Kale's case, it didn't matter because one year Kale Kale just went rogue one year, Ben, and was like, you know what? It's Indy. It's an IndyCar year, and so he just ran IndyCar, and then he went back mm-hmm. to NASCAR and. Um, but he was competitive in both, and those guys have that skill to to thrive in both divisions, just like Kurt Busch did if he wanted to run full time. And you know we've touched on it before. I think Jimmy Johnson's going to be so impressive when he when he's racing this year. Um, a lot of people are really excited. I include myself in that to see how well he does in it. But it takes a rare breed to try to go 1,100 miles in one day. I don't even want to do two i racing races in one day. That, that'd be enough for me. And these guys yeah. are in these hot race cars. And, it, and like, you made a good point, Ben. 
you got to drive them differently. Sure, they're, they're in some ways can be a little easier to drive than they were back in the day, but you got to drive these things differently. You got to hit your marks at Indianapolis. Yeah, they're ovals. Indy and Charlotte are two tough racetracks to drive on. And as much as you've got to be, you know, there's got to be a lot of precision in, in doing well and doing the double. And I think a lot of guys are turned off by the fact that, frankly, I think they're afraid they might screw up at Indy. And yeah. that's turned that's probably turned away some people. It could have. And, and you know, think of it this way too, Aaron. I mean, I've done, as we talked about in previous shows, I've done some driving schools and done some articles about them. And, you know, that to me, mentally knowing that I'm in a car and I could do by the end of the, of the, you know, the time in the school, not yeah. the beginning, of course, but in the, by the end of the, of the end of it, I could get to 165 miles an hour and feel good about it. That doesn't include having 39 other cars around me. And, you know, that's, that's a tough and tall order to fill when you're trying to get around a racetrack at 165 for three and a half or four hours mentally trying to to have a good finish for the people that have put a car on the track for you and you want to do your best okay and then and i take indy for example first uh, on the list and then you leave that venue fly to charlotte where it's an even longer race where you've got 600 miles 400 laps right and an entirely different type of mentality as far as the car goes and again oh by the way there's another 39 guys that want to outdo me so <laughs> yeah. it, it's just it's a it's a mental game i can't imagine you're tired uh your seat has to fit just right your back does you don't want your back to hurt yeah you, the pedals have to be just i mean so many things have to go into to pulling something like that off and i admire tony stewart and robbie gordon and, and the late john andretti and and kurt bush for saying you know what i have an opportunity to try this i want to try it i want to see how i can do and uh you know i admire those guys for doing it will it ever happen again don't know it depends on timing sponsorship uh, opportunity so many things have to go into it but i'd love to you, you know you brought up a good point i think kyle larson and kyle bush yeah. both kyle's i think either one could do extremely well if every all the pieces were to fit just right for sure and in this A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast, we are discussing things that have to go right for somebody to do well. When you're running the double, a whole lot has to go right, and a lot of it's out of your control. Another thing that requires things to go right is just the simple act of succeeding in NASCAR, Ben. There are a lot of guys, in my mind, who could have done a lot better with more equipment, maybe with an earlier start, uh, just with a different type of opportunity, had, had a chips fallen a little bit different in some of these guys' cases, we could have heard some, you know, a lot more success out of them. A couple that come to mind for me, Randy LaJoy was fantastic in the Bush Series in the 1990s, champion, championship driver. Never really got a, a, a super break in, uh, in Cup. He ran for Bill Davis in 95 for a while, didn't really work out, and then uh, subbed for Ricky Craven in 1998 for Hendrick Motorsports. Had a couple really good runs there, but just never quite got the breaks in the Cup Series like he got in the Xfinity Series. Dick Trickle, only thing that held this guy back, Ben, I mean, he won like a 1,000 short track races, if not more, and that's not even a, an exaggeration. Guy raced all the time, won all the time, all over the country, particularly in the Midwest. Dick didn't get in the Cup full-time until he was 48 or 49 years old. He's late 40s winning Rookie of the Year. That was so yeah. crazy, driving... That uh, Buick for Stavola, the year after Bobby retired, 
And then he won the Winston Open in 1990 at Charlotte, beat uh, the late Robbie Moroso by a couple feet. Fortunately, neither of those drivers are with us, sadly, anymore. Um, but, you know, Dick was a guy, I think, that had he got, had he just decided, all right, enough with Slinger, enough with these tracks here. I want to try to go around and run Daytona in, like, the 70s. I think you would have had another guy in that conversation with Richard Petty, Bobby Allison, Kel Yarborough, Buddy Baker. I think Dick Trickle would have been in that conversation because those guys regarded him as being such a skilled race driver who could who could run well anywhere. Um, had he just gotten started earlier, I think he could have made a lot of a, a lot of dents. Um, anybody in your mind who you feel like got a you know didn't quite get the deal they deserved? Yeah, and there's one driver that I. I really admire tremendously, and he's a good friend of mine, I'm happy to say. And I think if some breaks had gone a little bit different for him, he would have won as many races possibly as his brother. And that's the great Donnie Allison, because Donnie and I have had long talks about how, you know, this didn't go right or that didn't go right. And, And one of those that comes to mind, actually two races that come to mind, 1974 Daytona 500, he was in a different time zone that day. His number 88 die guard Chevrolet was on a rail. He was going to win the Daytona 500 and fate stepped in and someone about us uh, late in the race, someone had, had blown an engine. They didn't again, get all the pieces of the uh, engine off the racetrack and under caution, he crosses the start finish line set up right behind Richard Petty. He and Petty had been battling all afternoon blew two tires on that uh, blue and gold number 88 Chevrolet oh, he was driving and that that took his Daytona 500 victory away of course the second one is the 1979 500 when he and Kale crashed on the back stretch led to the big fight at least he won uh, the fight did he yeah, even win yeah, the least, fight <laughs> he won it didn't he uh, yeah i would I'd, yeah i'd say i'd say yeah he won the, but bobby was the one that was really doing all the pulling and the punching but uh yeah but donnie was in the middle of it too but i mean yeah. those two races um donnie comes to mind as being someone who was on the verge of, of doing and he did well he'd won 10 races in mm-hmm. his career and he his average finish of the amount of races that he wrote, drove was incredible. I mean, he was a, a tremendous race driver. It just didn't show up in the win column. But here's something that to think about very quickly, okay? Think of this analogy for a second. If you've got a pair of shoes and a basketball uniform and a gym and a hardwood floor and a hoop and a basketball, okay? You're bouncing that ball and you've been listening to your coaches and listening to your friends and saying, this is how you get the ball in the hoop. All right. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at shoes, uniform, floor, hoop, basketball. Okay. Got me so far. I think. (laughs) Okay. All right. So now let's change the scenario. And then you suddenly have a a 3,400 pound race car that's got four wheels, a hundred things that can go wrong an engine that has to be perfect right uh technology from in, in a lot of years what they call shade tree mechanics uh you know that were extremely smart about race cars yeah but you have to have the right chemistry and i think that with the driver's talent and that chemistry if you can marry the two together then you have situations uh, such as Jeff Hammond and Daryl Waltrip, or you have Chad Knauss and Jimmy Johnson, right. which was phenomenal what they put together. Sure. But there's so many reasons to think that 
success won't come in a race car because you got so many factors against you. Whereas if you were, again, using that a basketball analogy, you just got a few things to overcome. A race car, you got so many things that could go wrong. And you don't want to be negative about it, but it's just a fact that you got more reasons to uh, think that you're not going to win versus the ones that you are. And when, and, and when you ask Richard Petty, well, you had 1,184 starts or wherever that was, but he only won 200 of them. And, you know, yeah, that's, true. that's the greatest That's the greatest uh, record in NASCAR history, but I only won 200 of them. So there, that just shows you how many things could go wrong. So back to your original point about some of these drivers, they just, you know, the, the, they weren't necessarily bad drivers. There's a lot of really good, matter of fact, maybe 10,000 incredible drivers in the United States. Absolutely. Getting those right situations and getting that one phone call, getting with the right people, team owner, crew chief, all that plays so much into the into those factors. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of guys that, that come to mind thinking, man, just like Bobby Hillen, for instance, yep. another one. Had he just had a little more here and there then, uh, yeah, for sure, they could have uh, been a lot more successful. And the ones that were found the right combination that fit their driving style in the right cars, the right scenarios, and, and that's why they were successful. Yeah, and speaking of basketball, I'm really hoping that my beloved Charlotte Hornets, you know, they need – they got a lot of help now. We've got a great rookie point guard, Lamelo Ball, some great players, Gordon Hayward, Terry Rozier, Miles Bridges, Devontae Graham. You know, but those guys have the advantage that they're not going to dribble it and the ball's not going to go flat on them when they're about to go to the hoop for the, the winning jumper. Um, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it, so it's a valid point that these drivers have, you know, things out of their control that, that can happen. Um, sure, a guy can make a bad pass when you're streaking to the basket, but you can run a perfect race and have a bad pit stop. So it's not your fault and you still don't win. A um, lot of things have to go a, a guy's way. And, and before you even get that ride, Ben, there are guys who I think – could have got a break that never did. One that comes to mind, you guys ought to look him up. His name is Ronnie Thomas. Uh, mm -hmm. Ran in the Cup Series full-time, mostly, from 1978 through 84. Had nine top 10s. Best finish of his career was a seventh at North Wilkesboro in 1979. Ronnie mostly drove for his dad's team, Jabe Thomas. Um, never got a, a big ride. Was, was you know, just a, a constant underdog. Um and, you know, did very well with what he had. That There are a lot of people throughout the history of NASCAR who um, who had to do the same. And he made the best of his opportunities. Um, but unfortunately, he didn't end up winning any races because he just didn't quite have the um, the equipment to do so. But Ronnie Thomas has got, I think a lot of people, Ben, the younger audience, I don't know if I'm included in that now. I like to think I am, but I don't think I am anymore. Um, you know, we like to, you know, talk about how great, 80s NASCAR was, how cool it was. You know, I mean, I'm just as guilty of it as anybody. I love that Wrangler car and the Folgers car, the STP car, the Coors car. I could be on and on. The Tide car, the Skull car, I'll stop. But um, there are some names from that time period that just aren't discussed enough. And I feel like Ronnie Thomas is one of those guys who, you know, went out there and busted his hump for years, never got a big ride out of it. But he actually finished top 15 points in 1980. He had uh, four top ten finishes. It was the best season of his career. Um, but to just you know illustrate how difficult it was, the guy only led four laps in 197 starts. And I think had Ronnie Thomas ever gotten that ride um, with a Bud Moore, somebody like that, you know, maybe we see Ronnie Thomas running the Winston a few times in the late 80s rather than making his last start in the late 80s. 
Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and you know, the, uh, the drivers that uh, one of the drivers that comes to mind for me, there's many, many drivers, but one that comes to mind is, uh, Jimmy means who, yep. who drove his own race cars, uh, fielded them himself. And then there was one time when, uh, Tim Richmond, uh, became ill and could not drive at Charlotte. Uh, he was put in the number 25 Folgers car, except they changed the number to 52, ironically, which was uh, Jimmy's number. It just happened to be that the car Tim was driving was 25, so it's a pretty easy switch. And got into a, a crash not of his making on the backstretch, and it, it took him out. Had he maybe put together a top 10 or a top 5, who knows? Somebody could have given him a shot. Sure. And, uh, you know, it's so, it's so ironic how fate seems to step into some of these situations because we've seen the opposite of that happen where a particular driver comes through at the end of the day and, and pulls off a win. You know, I remember Neil Bonnet in 1977 in a, uh, JC, JD Stacy, uh, owned car mm-hmm. that was once the K and K, uh, Dodge that Bobby Isaac had been driving. But I mean, you know, Neil Bonnet was relatively unknown and he comes up and, and wins that race in 77. He also won an IROC race, uh, there in Atlanta that sort of put him on the map as well. And it's like, well, being in the right place at the right time has been so uh, helpful to these guys, but you could say the same thing with an early day, uh, you know, driver, uh, back in the seventies or what I say, a buddy Baker or whatever, that if he had not gotten the right brakes, even though his dad was Buck Baker, but still, that's not guaranteed. He, if he didn't have the right brakes and and maybe had not performed well on a certain Sunday, he might not have been as great as he was. So, the stage lights are on, so to speak, for just a very short amount of time. And if you don't perform flawlessly, then the stage light goes off and and you're off stage, and you maybe not get a chance ever again to do what you do best. I so. think that was the case with people like Randy LaJoy in the 90s. Another one more recently is uh, Dave Blaney. Dave Blaney, the father of Ryan Blaney, mm-hmm. very accomplished sprint car racer. I think if Dave would have gotten a, a better cup ride a little earlier in his career, I think you would have seen Dave Blaney win some races. He came close once or twice before, never closer than the 2012 Daytona 500. You know, a lot of us thought that the race was going to get called. Um, that rain was coming again, and we thought Dave Blaney, who, was, who had stayed out, was leading the race. Dave Blaney was going to win the Daytona 500. I remember Jeff Gluck was writing a, a, a story during this long red flag, you know, who is Dave Blaney? Is Dave Blaney going to the Daytona 500? It was, we were expecting a Michael McDowell-type story in 2012. It didn't end up materializing because the race did resume, and Matt Kenseth beat uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Greg Biffle to win the race. But Dave Blaney is a type of guy, I think, who... Had he gotten some better opportunities in his career, maybe we would have seen him win a handful of races. But you know what, Ben? You know, we'll, we'll never know. I mean, we maybe we'll write about some of these guys. I'm sure there's a lot of others that you guys could think of, um, you know, in your mind, who you an underdog who you rooted for, who just never quite got that dream opportunity, um, just never found the right situation. Um, because there are hundreds of them, Ben. I mean, there's just so many of those guys throughout history. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, there's the guys like the Jeff Greens, uh, you know, the say the Sam Hornish won a race. I think Bobby Hill, won, as I mentioned before, you got Scott Riggs. Scott Riggs got, is a great one. Yeah, Robert Presley, who did so well in the late models, and which turned into Xfinity Series, Bush Series. So good there. He Jack ran the Ingram. Cup series. Yeah, for sure. Ron Fellows, who was a great uh, – 
you know, a road racer, mm-hmm. a Kevin LePage. I mean, there's the list goes on and on and on. And but you know what? The, to put a positive spin on this, I mean, all right, say you're you're among 200 guys who tried to uh, be successful in NASCAR. Well, hey, you're one of those 200 guys. You know what I'm saying? You sure. had. You had starts in the Cup Series and maybe some top tens and top fives. But, you know, you're talking about one thing I got to add about Dick Trickle, and I loved talking to him uh, back in the late 80s. And I'm telling you straight up, this is not an exaggeration. It could be 125 degrees on pit road at Talladega, and he would have a cup of coffee in his hand every time. (laughs) (laughs) I saw him every time. I was like, Dick, what is the deal with the coffee? And it was not iced coffee. I just got to have my coffee, man. I got, and I'm sure it was, uh, it wasn't decaf. I'm sure it was regular because he needed something to get him going there. But it was just so funny to see him. If it was the hottest day you could possibly imagine at Daytona, July 4th, here comes Dick Trickle waddling down uh, pit road with a cigarette in one hand and a cup of coffee in the other. And it was just, that's <laughs> just, a hard pass for me on a hot day. I'm telling you, it was just crazy. It's like, man, what is up with the coffee? It's almost like it was his uh go juice or something if he didn't have his coffee you couldn't drive i don't know what it was but anyway just fun fun guy yeah and uh a guy who another guy who i think uh you know midwestern racing routes immensely successful in the the super late model late model racing world and uh from from that area whose name even rhymes with him rich bickle rich bickle had a top five finish at martinsville 1998 rich bickle had i think he had a cup ride in his prime he would have won some races as well. You know, there's just, you know, we could go on for hours. There's so many guys sure I think could. who had that potential who, uh, who just never really got a, a, the, the perfect avenue in the Cup Series to, to put those skills on display. Um, Bickle won some truck races. You know, a lot of the guys we, we've mentioned won races in other series. They just didn't quite get the big break in the Cup Series um, that, that some other drivers did. And, you know, it, that's still prevalent, I think, today, Ben, and it always will be because there's just there's more good drivers than there are good seats. And that that's uh, that's been a fact of the matter for a long time. Um, but you know what? Uh, to to their to their credit, like you said, they uh, they stuck with it and they still enjoyed the success that hundreds of thousands of race fans, millions of race fans would dream of having. And so it, it, it's a pleasure to watch those guys race and, and, you know, to, to entertain the thoughts of, you know, what could have happened, um, you know, had, had they, uh, had they got an opportunity to be more successful? We'll never know. One thing I do know, Ben, is I think that we've crossed the finish line on episode 10. That sentence rhymed. It wasn't on purpose. Um, <laughs> it has I was going to give you credit for that one. Okay. <laughs> no, nah, I can't. I take, take credit Don't for that you one. Practice that one in front of the mirror or something. Yeah. Not today. Maybe yesterday. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> it has been a blast, as always, chatting yes. up with you, man. Love doing it. Let's do it again soon. We are going to be back with episode 11, Faster Than NASCAR Can Bust Somebody for Speeding on Pit Road at Pocono. Um, in the meantime, throw us a rating our way wherever you're listening we'd love to hear your feedback um we post uh, these links to these podcasts on the at npp mag that's the nascar pole position twitter account since we are part of the out of the groove podcast network i know sometimes our conversations get way out of the groove but ben and i just love nascar we love talking about it we have yep. an immense passion and appreciation for the sports history and we look forward to bringing you episode 11 very quickly but in the meantime for ben white I'm Aaron Burns. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of A Lifetime in NASCAR. So long, everybody.
Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.